Good morning, church. It's a delight to be with you. My name is Johnny, and uh, I'm reading now from John chapter 12. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now, the rule, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this signifying by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, Believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, I'd like to start out this morning with a question, and I will warn you, as I often do when we start this way, that it's not the most fun question, but it is an important one. And as we'll see from our passage that Johnny just read for us, Jesus leads us right to this question, which is this, what are you most afraid to lose? What are you in your life most afraid to lose? You might have thought about your family, you might be thinking about your reputation or a particular relationship within your life, maybe financial stability, vocational success, physical health, or any number of other things. What are you most afraid to lose? Now here is the follow-up question and how it connects with our text this morning. What if Jesus himself were to reach into your life and ask you for that very thing? 
What if Jesus himself were to reach into your life and ask you for that very thing? What would you do? Or maybe we should ask and frame this line of thinking this way. What are you afraid following Jesus might cost you? What are you afraid following Jesus might cost you? Maybe you're here this morning, you're a follower of Jesus, but you've been holding back in some area. You know in your heart of hearts that you've been clinging on to this, that, or the other just a bit. I want to be financially generous, but I don't want to change my lifestyle. I want to share my faith, but I'm really worried about the impact of that at work if people find out that I'm a Christian. I want to honor Jesus with my sex life, but I'm almost sure that I don't have that much self-control. And on and on and on. What are you most afraid to lose? What are you worried following Jesus might cost you? Well, friends, this morning I had some good news and maybe some bad news. The good news about all of this is that we do not have to wonder. In fact, Jesus is incredibly clear and upfront about what he wants from us. He does not mince words about the cost of following him. With Jesus, there is nothing hidden. There is no fine print that you have to put on your reading glasses to make sure you capture. That's the good news. He leaves nothing to doubt. But the bad news, maybe, depending on your perspective, is that Jesus doesn't just want one, two, three, four, or five things. Jesus wants it all. Everything. All the way up to and including your very life. And again, I know that maybe on the surface, that offer from Jesus presents itself as sort of a bad news overreach. Like, who are you, Jesus, to demand that much from anyone? But here's the twist. If we're willing to dig a little bit deeper into this, I think, I hope, that we'll discover that Jesus' offer is actually the best we're ever going to get. It only seems like bad news on the surface. So I want to invite us to enter in together to the middle of John chapter 12. At the start of this new year, 2023, we're returning to finish out the Gospel of John, which is the fourth theological biography of Jesus' life in the New Testament. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. John is a book that we started studying earlier back in 2022 before we paused our study of it to pick up in the fall a study of the book of Ephesians. And then for Advent, we were looking at how Jesus is the promised king in the Old Testament book of the Psalms. But, but this chapter, John chapter 12, is actually a great place to pick back up our study because this functions as a major hinge moment in the gospel. Last week, our friend Phil Sale preached on the beginning of this chapter, which includes Jesus, John's account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on a donkey. It's the triumphal entry, or in the church uh, calendar, we call that Palm Sunday. And significantly, this moment of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem occurs about one week before the end of Jesus' life, which means that with still 10 more chapters to go, In this book, the Gospel of John, the apostle slows way down in his accounting. This sets us up, I believe, for a rich study of the final few days of Jesus' life. Our humble hope and prayer is that we will be able to behold our King together, which is what we're titling this teaching series, Behold Our King. And again, it's our hope, our humble hope, that we will be able to do this together as we study these remaining chapters of John, because the reality is that even though all are invited to behold Jesus as king, anyone and everyone is invited to behold Jesus as king, the reality is that not everyone 
does that. Which is actually what the beginning of this morning's passage reveals to us. I'm going to borrow the final verse from last week's passage, verse 19, and we're going to see how this bears out. Verses 19 through 22 of John chapter 12. You can follow along with me. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. I mean, look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now, verse 19 is referring backward. Once again, I've already mentioned to Jesus' triumphal entry to Jerusalem and to how the crowds have flocked to Jesus largely on the basis of his final sign within the Gospel of John, which was his miraculous raising of his friend Lazarus from the dead. That story is incredible, and it's captured for us in John chapter 11. And because of this increased interest in Jesus and his ministry and his leadership and his authority from the crowds, the Pharisees and the rest of the religious leaders, they've already been busy. They've already been at work plotting to capture and kill not just Jesus, but Lazarus as well. Which, just as a side, like, man, like the dude dies once and then people are already trying to kill him. You know, like, don't you kind of feel bad for him? He's, he's already had to die and now there's people that are out to make that happen again, right? What's ironic, though, is that when the Pharisees in verse 19 say, as is recorded for us there, the world has gone after him, almost certainly they only mean everyone in the Jerusalem area. The Passover feast is coming, and that included many Jewish pilgrims who were visiting the city. But what's almost certainly true is that these religious leaders don't believe, don't think that the whole literal world might be interested interested in beholding Jesus as king. They're far too narrow-minded for that kind of thinking about how big Jesus might actually become. But then immediately in verse 20, the apostle John reports that some non-Jews, Greeks, who were also in Jerusalem for the feast, they are interested in beholding Jesus and meeting Jesus. And we cannot miss the significance of this. In the exact moment when the leaders of the Jewish people are most violently turning against Jesus, the nations of the world, represented here by these Greeks, are beginning to behold him, are beginning to be drawn to him. We shouldn't miss the significance of this because Jesus himself does not miss the significance of this. In fact, it is so important that he ends up shifting the conversation from a simple get-to-know-you exchange, the Greeks wanted to meet with Jesus, but he frames it in such a different, larger sort of way. Verse 23 is in answer, how Jesus answers the Greeks' request to meet him. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Again, this is a big deal because you see up until this point in the gospel of John, every time that Jesus has mentioned his hour, it has been only to say that his hour is not yet here. It's coming. My hour is coming, he will say, but it is still off in the future. But now in John 12, based on the rejection of the Jewish leaders and based on the interest of the nations, Jesus knows the equation has changed. His hour has come. And he also mentions, as you can see in this verse, that his hour has come to be glorified. My hour is here. It has come. The equation has changed. My hour has come to be glorified. But we have to keep pushing forward in this passage 
to see exactly what Jesus means by being glorified. Because I know where my mind goes when I hear the idea of someone receiving glory. And if you're anything like me, and we don't keep pushing forward, then we're going to wander off together to a different place than where Jesus is at regarding His glory. Thankfully, he immediately clarifies, it's my hour, it's here, it's my hour to be glorified. And then in verse 24, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now that's different than me, right? When I hear glory I think of honor, I think of victory, I think of elevation, I think of exaltation. But Jesus, he's like, all right, I just mentioned my glory. Now I'm going to weave in this metaphor about a seed dying. He immediately starts talking about death. So let's make sure we unpack the fullness of Jesus' meaning here together. Let's look a bit more closely at this metaphor. He mentions a grain of wheat, a seed. And for a seed to experience its full glory, you don't have to be a farmer to know. What what has to happen for a seed to experience its full glory? Well, essentially, it has to die. It even has to be buried in the ground, even. But then, notice, it is then and only then, only then that the seed can actually sprout life, resurrecting, in a sense, to bear the fruit of hundreds, a multitude of new seeds. Church, don't miss it. The glory, the glory of a seed only comes by way of its death. The ultimate glory of a seed only comes by way of its death. And so Jesus is meaning about His own glory, for He is the Son of Man that is referenced in these verses, Jesus' meaning about His own glory also becomes clear. Jesus' glory, just like the glory of a seed, only comes by way of His death. But thanks be to God, because Jesus too will be resurrected, and Jesus too will experience the glory of His new resurrected life bearing much fruit. In fact, much more fruit than, than we would ever imagine. But Jesus knows what the plan is. He doesn't keep this upside-down pathway to glory to himself. Up to this point in the passage, Jesus has been talking about himself. But as the end of verse 24 draws in here, and verse 25 begins, he shifts outward. He extends an invitation to the crowd, and, and by extension, he extends an invitation to all of us as well. He immediately invites him to join us on this upside-down, different pathway to glory. Verses 25 and 26. Whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life loses it, excuse me, whoever loves his life loses it, but whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Whoever loves his life will lose it, but whoever hates his life in this world will keep it, will keep it for eternal life. I mean, we're back where we started this morning, aren't we? We're back to the honesty of Jesus. We're back to his plain telling of the cost of what it will take to follow him. And I know that this is not easy to consider. 
But like I said at the start, I genuinely believe that this, these verses, this offer that we see here from Jesus is the best we're ever going to get. And one reason I believe that's true is this. I want us to wrestle with this idea together. There will be loss with or without Jesus. There will be loss with or without Jesus. You see, church, I believe that one of the greatest lies of our modern moment, and really throughout all of human history, is this. You can have it all and lose nothing. You can have it all and not lose anything. I think that's one of the greatest lies of our modern moment, and indeed all throughout human history. I think that the reality is that we're all already, every single one of us, is already giving our lives over to someone or something that actually is demanding everything of us. Each and every day we are saying yes to whatever it is, which necessarily means that we are saying no in a bunch of other places. The trick of it is that we just don't recognize that that is what is happening. It is a lie. We can't have it all and not lose anything. There will be loss. There will be loss with or without Jesus, which is why I so... Track with me on this. Are we not grateful that at least Jesus is honest about it? He's so honest about it. Straightforward, strikingly straightforward, especially in verse 25. Whoever loves his life is going to lose it. But whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, this comparative of love and hate, when Jesus says that if we love our lives, we will lose it, what he means is if you live only for yourself, if you live as if you are your own God, if you live as if you are the ultimate and essential focal point of your existence, if you grip onto your life with such a strangling tight hold, well, Jesus says, the tragic irony is that you're going to lose it. You're going to lose your life. It won't make you happy. It won't fulfill you. Your life will slip through your fingers even as you're gripping it as tightly as you can. In fact, your life will slip through your fingers exactly, precisely because you are gripping it as tightly as you can. But there is another way. Here is what happens if we choose to lose. If we choose to lose our life. First, yes, and I don't want to minimize this, we still experience a significant loss. We're choosing to do what? We're choosing to lose. There is still lost in this alternate pathway. What Jesus is inviting us to do is that we might, every single day of our lives, wake up and ultimately say no to ourselves. In these verses, Jesus describes it as hating our lives. And we have to be careful, again, with this comparative between love and hate. He is not saying that we must live a life of self-loathing where we berate ourselves or have bad self-esteem or are negative towards ourselves. That's not what Jesus is saying. No, rather, this kind of comparative language was really, really common in Jesus' day as a way to rhetorically drive home the point. And Jesus says this elsewhere. He says, no one can serve two masters. That helps you understand it, right? What else does he say in that passage? He says, you will love one... And you will hate the other. I mean, that's the sort of central idea of this metaphor. Or I might describe it this way. Your heart, my heart, every single one of our hearts has a throne room within it. And inside the throne room of our hearts, there's only one seat. 
And whatever is sitting on the seat in the throne room of your heart, that is what you, in the comparative metaphor, that's what you love. Whatever is sitting on the seat in the throne room of your heart, that is what you love. Capital L, capital O, capital V, capital E. And by extension and comparison, everything else is what you hate. One commentator, one scholar, this is really helpful language. He describes this comparative uh, dynamic here. He says, it's what we have a fundamental preference for. A fundamental, I really like that language. What we have a fundamental preference for. If we have a fundamental preference for our lives, then we lose them. But if we have a fundamental preference for Jesus, then we gain our lives paradoxically by way of losing them. Do not miss, right? Either option, either path, Both include great loss. With or without Jesus, there is loss. But again, one of the key differences is that at least Jesus is honest about it. In my experience, everything else, including myself or or any item or any sense of what I might achieve in this life, anything else that I might choose to put on the seat in the throne room of my heart, it lies about the cost that is going to be put upon me. Jesus is honest. Everything else lies. If your kids are your fundamental preference, then you'll exhaust them as you try to live through them or you'll push them away by your smothering. If your bank account is the fundamental preference of your life, then you will completely miss out on the joy of generosity, on the joy of discovering that it truly, actually, genuinely is better to give than receive. If the fundamental preference of your life is your work, is your job, then your family will suffer, always battling with you for your time and attention. But up front, our kids, right, our bank accounts, our jobs, they're going to lie about that cost. It's going to be hidden. It is going to be in the fine print. In fact, they didn't even include the fine print. The only person that's honest about this, is Jesus. Whatever is the fundamental preference of our lives costs us a great deal and exerts an extraordinary amount of control over us. We must fully reckon with all that it costs and all that we lose to take either one of these pathways, the pathways, the pathway of following anything else other than Jesus or the pathway of following Jesus himself. Speaking of this dynamic, the late author and philosopher Dallas Willard, he, he talks and he, he names brilliantly, I think, what he says is the cost of non-discipleship. So Jesus says, hey, if you're going to follow me, count the cost. But there's this shadow, right? This hidden, this lying that happens over here. There is an enormous cost to non-discipleship. He writes about this in the book, The Great Omission. And he says this, non-discipleship costs abiding peace, It costs a life penetrated throughout by love. It costs faith that sees everything in light of God's overriding governance for good. Hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances. Power to do what is right. In short, non-discipleship costs you the exact abundance of life that Jesus said he came to bring. Gosh, I love that last line. 
In short, non-discipleship costs you exactly the abundance of life that Jesus said he came to bring us and that we also desperately need. Are we starting to see, church, that there will be loss with or without Jesus? There will. But we should also fear not. Because the main truth that the Apostle John wants us to see in this passage is actually that Jesus is worth everything that we're afraid of losing. Jesus is worth everything that we are afraid of losing. Yes, it is true that when we decide that Jesus will be the fundamental preference of our lives, then we do experience the loss of our life. The cost of following Jesus is all of it. It's everything. That's what he wants. The great author and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously wrote that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And he was right about that. But I don't think that we quote often enough what he said just before those famous words. Here's the the greater context of that famous line from Bonhoeffer. He writes, as we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. But thus it begins. You see, the cross is not... It's not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life. Instead, it meets us at the beginning of our beautiful and life-giving communion with Christ. The question is not whether or not there is a cost. The question is only which cost is worth it. Which cost is worth it? We give up everything when we follow Jesus, which is undoubtedly a high cost, but in doing so, we get Jesus. We get, as Bonhoeffer writes, communion with Christ. And church, friends, there is nothing, nothing in this world that is better than genuine, rich, leisurely communion with Christ. Nothing better. You see, ultimately, the reason that I think that this is true, that Jesus is worth everything you're afraid of losing, ultimately, I think, why I think this is true is because of what he describes next in the passage. Here's how Jesus continues. I want us to look together at verse 27, and then we'll jump down to verses 32 and 33. We'll have those uh, two sections on the screen together. Jesus says in verse 27, he says, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? (laughs) But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. He said this to show by by what kind of death he was going to die. We've already been able to intuit from the seed metaphor, back in verse 24, that Jesus' glory will come by way of his death. And in this section of our passage, Jesus continues to describe what is coming for him. What he knows will be at the center of his process of glorification, his death on the cross. And I really am touched by verse 27. My soul is deeply troubled. In his humanity, just like you and I possess humanity, in his humanity, Jesus is understandably deeply anguished and troubled by this coming series of events. 
But he also unshakably knows that it is the core purpose of why he came to the earth. Because he knows that by way of this series of events, his betrayal, his sham trial, his mockery, his being nailed to the cross, his sacrificial death, he knows that by way of all of this, he will, as he says, he will draw all people to himself. I love that idea of, of all peop- people being drawn to Jesus. There's something attractive. There's something, it's a magnetic force when we see our Lord and Savior up upon the cross for us. And all people are this way. And this does not mean everyone everywhere throughout all time. This means, this phrase all people means all kinds of people from all corners of the world, Jews and Gentiles alike without any distinction. All people means anyone and everyone who comes to see and know that Jesus is worth everything that we're afraid of losing. And again, don't miss this, right? What Jesus so clearly reveals in these verses is that as high a cost as he's asking us to pay, Jesus paid it first. The path that he is asking us to walk, do you know who's walked it ahead of us? Jesus. Jesus went first. Yes, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. But what Jesus really does is say, hey, follow me into my death where I have already gone. Walk the pathway that I'm already farther down upon. I'm inviting you to start your journey behind me. Jesus is worth everything that we're afraid of losing because he went ahead of this path of losing. Before you, before me, before anyone else, he walked this path first. And if we choose to follow, if we choose to follow Jesus down this pathway of losing our lives, just like Jesus lost his life, then we are going to discover and experience the extraordinary freedom of a life lost and a life controlled by Jesus. We gain by losing. We are freed from our slavery by giving over our enslavement to Jesus, the good and benevolent master. Speaking of this dynamic as it relates to the option of a fundamental preference for money, over Jesus, which again, I think that for many of us, money might occupy the seat in the throne room of our lives. And pastor and author Tim Keller, he he so brilliantly talks about this dynamic. Here's how he writes about this. He says, Jesus gave up all his treasure in heaven in order to make you his treasure, for you are a treasured people. I love this line here the most. When you see Jesus dying to to make you his treasure that will make him yours. When you see Jesus dying to make you his treasure, that will make him yours. Money will cease to be the currency of your significance and security. And you will want to bless others with what you have. To the degree that you grasp the gospel, money will have no dominion over you. Instead, think on his costly grace until it changes you into a generous person. The solution to stinginess is a reorientation to the generosity of Christ in the gospel how he poured out his immense, abundant, matchless wealth for you. Do we see that? Do we know that? 
whether it's with money or anything else, if we start to grasp the glory of Jesus and all that he gave up for us in the heart of the gospel, then we will be freed from what we are afraid of losing. We will truly see, I believe, we will come to know that Jesus is worth everything that we're afraid of losing. And from there, the only option for us, I would contend, is that we would start losing today. Let's start losing today, right? This is where we see the rest of our passage come into play. I kind of feel for the crowd in this passage. They, they have a few different times where they get rather confused. The first is in verse 29, God audibly speaks from heaven to affirm that he will honor his name by way of Jesus' death and resurrection. And then the crowd again experiences confusion in verse 34. They simply can't imagine how the Messiah will remain forever if he is lifted up onto his death. They don't have a category for a Messiah Savior that would sacrifice himself in that way and that would die. This is all understandable, but, and this is classic Jesus here, instead of moving to clarify their confusion, instead what Jesus does is he gives them and us our next step. The final two verses in this passage read this way. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. And he's already established back earlier in this gospel that he is the light. This is the next step. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons and daughters of the light. Again, classic Jesus here. It's not that he is unsympathetic to the confusion of those who are trying to follow him. There's a lot of different instances where the disciples, the closest friends and followers of Jesus, they come to him and Jesus does clarify their confusion. But there's other times where he doesn't do that and I think that's actually good news because what it tells us is that full, complete, total understanding is not a prerequisite for following Jesus. And that's good news because what it means is no matter who you are, no matter how familiar or unfamiliar you are with Jesus, anyone and everyone can take at least one next step on this journey of following him. Because you don't have to have it all figured out. So sometimes Jesus clarifies, other times he doesn't. And here he, he gives the next step. And he does it urgently. The light is among you for only a little while longer. That's why there's an exclamation point. Start losing today, right? I want to invite us to this with that same sense of urgency for Jesus. And I want to give two really quick ways we can do this, both from the text. First, lose by walking in the light. Lose by walking in the light. In these final verses, which I just read, Jesus is brilliantly weaving together a walking, the theme of a walking metaphor with the theme of the metaphor of darkness and life. And both of these, this idea of walking as, as a means of sort of imagining what it is to follow Jesus, and the themes of darkness and light, both of these are repeated throughout the Gospel of John to this point. And these two verses, they're acting as a summary conclusion of these themes and a, and a stark invitation, a command and a call from Jesus. Walk in the light. Those who walk in the darkness, they don't see what's going on. So instead, walk in the light. You might not have the full understanding that you want, Jesus says. But you know enough. You know enough. And church, we certainly know enough to choose to walk in the light rather than in the darkness. And in the context of this sermon, I want to submit that the darkness that we often succumb to 
is the immeasurable cost of following anyone or anything other than Jesus. That's the darkness that we succumb to. So when I say here that we should lose by walking in the light, what I mean is that we should choose to reject the darkness of a life that is controlled by something or someone other than Jesus. I want to ask us to all take time this week to audit our lives, so to speak. Audit our lives. To consider what or who might have control of our lives and all of the costs associated with walking in that darkness rather than walking in the light, which is Jesus. Yes, we will have to choose to lose when we walk in the light, which is Jesus, but remember, that choice is worth it. So lose by walking in the light. Second, lose by serving. Lose by serving. Did you catch this from earlier in the passage? One more time, I want to read kind of the central thesis verses of, these passage, of this passage. Verses 25 and 26. We spent a lot of time on these verses already. Whoever loves his life loses it, but whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone, and here it is, right? If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will glorify him. The Father will honor him. Church, a lost life that gives itself over to following Jesus into his death will be a life of servanthood, a life of servanthood. But verse 26 reminds us that the reward of that choice is the Father's honor. The reward of that choice is getting back to the life that we were gripping onto so tightly and getting, as the end of verse 25 tells us, getting to keep that life, not just for right now, but getting to keep it, what does it say, into eternal life. I mean, that's a pretty good deal, isn't it? Again, I don't know about you, but I'm convinced that it is the best offer we're ever going to get. So maybe you're interested and maybe you're wondering, how can you lose by serving? How can you lose by serving? Well, a simple next step on that journey would be to join us in engaging the form.life during this series. You can grab one of these companion journals on the hello wall, which is on the left-hand side as you exit the worship center, and make sure to sign up for the daily emails that happen at www.theform.life. And the reason why this connects so well during this series is we always have a spiritual habit of focus as we walk through these teaching series, and the spiritual habit right now in the form.life is the habit of servanthood. And so that would be a super easy, really simple next step as you want to consider how to begin to lose by serving. Church, you know this, right? We also have a ton of ways to serve here at Christ Community, both formally and informally, we are deeply, deeply committed to what the Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4 where he says that church leaders should seek to equip the saints for the work of service, for works of service. Equip the saints for the works of service, meaning one of my most key jobs as a pastor is to get you all ready, is to help get you all ready to do exactly this. It's like at the top of my job description is to help all of us together figure out the steps that we need to take in our individual lives to lose by the way of serving. Which, losing by serving is just another place where Jesus went first, isn't it? Isn't that just another example of how Jesus always goes ahead of us? Jesus never goes somewhere. He never asks you to go somewhere that He hasn't already gone. Because who served more than Jesus. 
He bore the cost of his death first. He lost the cost of his life first. And he served first. And he served most. So yes, yes, as we covered since the very beginning of this sermon, the cost of following Jesus, it's high. It's everything. It's all of us. Every inch and nook and cranny of our lives. But we shouldn't hesitate. Church, do not hesitate to accept that offer because it is the best offer. Jesus is worth everything that we're afraid of losing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that Jesus went first. Thank you that we don't have to walk down this pathway of self-forgetfulness, down this pathway of, of losing our lives, blindly wandering into the darkness. In fact, this is the path where we get to walk behind the light of the world, your son Jesus, who went there first, who lost his life first, who bore the cost of the cross that I deserve, that we deserve. So thank you that Jesus went first. And thank you that he doesn't hoard this path to eternal life to himself, but he invites us down it, Lord. May each and every one of us start losing today by the power of your spirit and our own choices, and may we walk in the light. We pray all of this in the name of the light of the world, Jesus. Amen. You know, I, I've been thinking as I studied this passage just how powerful the metaphor of the seed is in verse 24 how it's this incredible image of all that Jesus is talking about. I mean, it's, a, it's a sad day for a seed initially to be put in the ground, right? But all the fruit that is born up out of it. I love that metaphor. It's one of the ways that Jesus describes this pathway of death to life in this passage. And right now, we are about to come to Jesus' table, where we will together behold our King with elements at the table that also really powerfully tell this story of death to life. Think about the grain that was crushed that we might have this bread. And think about the grapes that were crushed that we might have this juice. To have these elements at our king's table that will feed us, that will nourish us, that will sustain us, and that can give us life as we meet Jesus and his gospel in this place. It's why we do communion each and every week here at Christ Community. And we have four stations to do that. We have two in the back, which are designed for the middle sections, and then two in the front that are for the side sections. If you're in one of the side sections, you can line up along the wall, and your servers will invite you to come together in groups of five to seven, because this is a family meal, right? The seed that bursts forth has lots of other seeds that come from it, that's all of us. Like, there's tons of seeds here in this room now. And so we come together as seeds uh, to the table as family members, and we partake with one another. Uh, the server will instruct you to take the gluten-free bread, to dip it into the juice, and then you will wait until everyone is ready, uh, and the servers will instruct you to take then. We practice open communion, which means if you're one of those seeds, if, you, if Jesus is sitting on the throne room of your life, if you have lost your life, for Jesus, in order that you might find it in Him, then please join us. But if that doesn't describe you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, we are so desperately grateful that you're here this morning. 
It's not easy for anybody to walk in the doors of a church, maybe particularly for someone who says that they're not a Christian. But thank you for trusting us with your time. During these next few minutes in communion, if you would want to uh, pray, if that's something that you do, or reflect upon the, the worship or the sermon that you just heard, maybe consider the question of who or what is sitting on the seat in the throne room of your heart, if it's not Jesus. Well, on the night that he was to be betrayed, Jesus took bread, which came from a grain of wheat, and he, he broke it, and he handed it to his closest friends and followers, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. When they had finished eating, he took the cup in the same way, and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. So let us come together to the table to taste and touch the good news of our King Jesus. You can come when you are ready.